Well, thank you all for being here this morning. It's really good to see you. I know that there's at least a handful of people that are dealing with the allergies right now. Anyone? All right. Uh, That turns our eyes to heaven indeed as we come to the end of Colossians, this beautiful letter in four chapters in our Bibles that Paul wrote to this small little church struggling like all churches do with things, the world, the flesh, and the devil in this little city of Colossae in the Lycus Valley that at this point in history is really not that significant, but these people, like you all here in Santa Fe, matter to Jesus. And so he has a word for us this morning. In fact, one gentleman, I believe he was a physician, Dr. Jerry Motto, he said this decades ago. He discovered the power of what he referred to for his patients for their long-term care as a caring letter, a caring letter. His research found that simply sending a letter, especially a handwritten letter, expressing care to discharged patients who had previously attempted suicide, reduced the rate of recurrence by half. Recently, healthcare providers, in all this talk of mental health issues, which are very real and very present to us in a pandemic, mental healthcare providers have rediscovered this power when sending, quote, caring, unquote, texts postcards, even social media memes. That's what I want, by the way. That's my caring letter. Send me the memes. Laughter is good medicine. As follow-up treatment, they're actually calling it treatment for the severely depressed. In the New Testament, there are, in the New Testament, there are 21 books that are actually letters. Sometimes we call these epistles, just from the Greek word letter. Caringly written and carefully written to help first century believers who struggled for a variety of reasons just like us. And it's been a joy. I think John and I have talked about this. It's just been great to go through Colossians. I'd encourage you to read it again. Go on the YouTubes, on the interwebs, and download the the deal. You can listen to it for free. It's just a wonderful letter. It's a caring letter. It's a helpful letter. It's a letter in which Paul isn't, is no ivory tower theologian. He's a shepherd wanting to these, see these beloved Christians turn away, turn away from the false teaching and the lies that don't satisfy, that shipwreck your faith. And as John said earlier, the kindness of Jesus Christ will lead you to repent, to turn from those things, but not just turn away, turn to, turn to God. So this letter is all about providing this young church full of young believers with a firm foundation, the help they need to face the pitfalls in front of them. These are our pitfalls, and that's why these caring letters are also universal letters. Paul says, read it far and wide. Make sure you pass it on to the Laodiceans. Everyone needs to hear this. In all of Asia Minor, pass it around the empire. That way we can have joy together on our journey. And Paul tells us clearly what his great desire is as he finishes this letter. We see it in verse 12 as he's in reference to Epaphras. Remember, Epaphras was the guy from Colossae, mentioned in chapter 1, who had probably come to know the Lord Jesus Christ through Paul's ministry in Ephesus. 
and who had then returned to Colossae to plant this church. Paul's not actually ever been there. Perhaps that's why he takes such great pains to remind them of all these deep relational connections that they share. They haven't even met, but they're family. And in verse 12, he says this, that Epaphras is always wrestling and praying for you. Why? So that you, church, you, Christ Church Santa Fe, you individual Christian, so that you may stand mature. So that you may stand mature and fully assured in all the will of God. Paul is saying, look, I'm writing you this letter and we're wrestling in prayer over this letter because we want you who know the Lord Jesus Christ to grow up and be mature, to have deep roots in his grace and his word, to bear good fruit, good grapes, and then go out and make good wine, and then go out and love and bless the city that you're in. You may be a small and merry band in Colossae. You may be few numbered in Santa Fe, but be mature And then be fully assured by all that Christ has done, his person, his work, all that he is for you, past, present, and future. That's why Paul writes to these folks that he considers family and friends. He writes to them about their purpose. He reminds them of his chains. He's in jail. He's in house arrest. He's struggling. And so we get written into that too, right? The gospel isn't just for people who have it all together. Man, you're looking good. You got it all together. No, you don't. First of all, I know most of y'all. I know that's not true. It's an invitation to be real. Even as Paul is in his chains, he says, you know what? I may be in chains, but I'm free. I'm free because Christ is supreme. The supremacy and preeminence of Christ is the heartbeat of this letter. And the blood that flows through this body creates thankfulness among the people of Colossae. So as we end the letter, as we come to the end of Colossians, we move now toward Easter. Next week, we'll be in the Garden of Gethsemane. On Good Friday, we'll be with the crucifixion. And on Easter Sunday, we'll be thinking and glorifying God about the resurrection. As we come to the end of Colossians, a few questions. If you were to write a letter, If you were to close the letter of your own life, if these were to be the last words of your letter, what would your theme be? Likewise, who would be on your list? Who would be on your list of greetings? And what would you commend for a full and a true life? These are questions worth considering because if Colossians has shown us anything, there are are great dangers to the letters of our own lives. There are great dangers to the themes, the friends, and that which we would commend. The first danger is that we would have a lesser theme. Somehow that we could earn our way to God, as we've already seen with the false teachers. You have to know the secret. You have to keep the laws. You have to do the weird Jewish festivals and mysticism, and only we know the right stuff and the handshake and the, and the funny hat. And so you better get around our faction And and that's what you need. Jesus plus this other stuff. What a great danger. What a lesser theme. Religion. Self-righteousness. Second, an, an empty list. I think one of the things that we are starkly reminded of in this closing, and all these names, right? These names that are that would otherwise just be lost to history. They're normal people like you. 
They're just normal Christian people in a church. These aren't some kind of like super spiritual extra Christians. They're just people who love Jesus, love each other, and are serving the Lord. That, that we, we have the danger of an empty list. And I think especially in our cultural context, this is a real danger. You know, we are self-made people. We are self-made people. And yeah, I was, I was thinking about this recently as I've been talking to another friend that you know, we don't really like to be told what to do, do we? <laughs> we don't really like to be under authority. We don't really like to be in, I mean, you know, be in community, like we show up and we hang out and, you know, keep it on the surface level, talk sports, weather, tell some jokes. But to really go deep, to really be in each other's lives, to really not be alone, to really allow other people to speak into our lives because the Holy Spirit is operative here in you and in me. And I don't always like that. I was talking to a, a lady this last week, a dear friend of ours at the church, and you know, she shared a few things with me that, I'll be honest with you, I didn't love. And as I thought about it, I'm like, well, I may not love that, but she is right. <laughs> it's a great danger to have an empty list. As we've said repeatedly, there are no John Wayne Christians. I'm sorry. As much as we love Simon and Garfunkel, you are not a rock. You are not an island. We need each other. So a lesser theme, an empty list, and lastly, that great danger of a futile and fading purpose. Isn't it amazing that this is just years after the death and resurrection of Jesus Christ? There are still living those who have walked with Jesus and personally witnessed his miracles, his power, his raising from the dead, and yet this little church in Colossae struggles with the same things you and I do. Pursuing comfort, self-preservation, self-promotion, self-protection, money, accolades, status in their city, just avoiding pain. Trying to appease the gods, trying to keep up with the Joneses, all of these things are operative. And it's the first century. And yet in all these dangers, we're reminded of that great saying, right? that you will never ever see a U-Haul behind a hearse. Or as uh, one guy, John Piper put it, I sort of like this, he tells a story about how growing up he had this plaque hanging up in his house in his kitchen. A reminder of things eternal, a reminder of the dangers. One life to live so soon will pass, only what's done for Christ will last. And I just have one modification to that. Only what's done in Christ and by the Spirit with Christ will last. And so it's good for us to both ask these questions and consider these dangers. What would be your theme? Who's on your list? What would you commend? Paul wants us to live, to be free in Christ. He wants our church, Christ Church Santa Fe, to know, to see, to taste, and to experience the power of Jesus. To not be weakened by false teaching. To not be distracted by vain pursuits and fickle gods. And that's why Paul ends this letter, Colossians, so emphatically. And it's all there in the text, right? It just sounds like a bunch of greetings, but this, this emphatic close is right there. It's as if Paul is saying, we started here, we're ending here. Grasp God's grace. And so that's the theme this morning that we're going to unpack. Grasp his grace. Or, if you will, as we just sang 
In the chorus of that new and beautiful song, when I feel my hope about to break, I will cling to your unchanging grace. This is Paul's commendation to us. Cling to the grace of God. Grasp his grace. And in our text, of course, Paul gives us three strong holds. Three strong holds. The first is this, grasp the grace of God. The second, grasp the grace of partnership. And the third, grasp the grace of healing. The grace of God, grasp it. Partnership, grasp that grace. It's a means of grace that God uses. We live in a body. Healing. So grasp the grace of God. You know, it's funny, John and I, it's like the same New Mexican food every week, I hope. Right? It's like the same six ingredients. You just put some cheese and some salt on it and heat it up. That's what we're getting when we come to God's word, is we unpack. I mean, there's, there's narrative, there's prose, there's poetry, there's law, there's wisdom, there's apocalyptic. I mean, it's just, it's deep. We'll never exhaust the Bible. And yet every week, it's that delicious New Mexican food that brings comfort to our souls because it is grace all the way down. Costly grace. Grace is the beginning, verse 2 of chapter 1. Grace be with you. Grace is the end. Verse 18 of chapter 4. Grace be to you. And this week, I just got to thinking about grace a whole lot. And with our kiddos, we watched this animated movie version of John Bunyan's Pilgrim Pro- Pilgrim's Progress. It's an amazing book and a great movie. I would recommend it to all of you. A wonderful movie to watch with your kiddos or grandkids. And it reminded me of a little pithy and powerful saying attributed to John Bunyan, although probably not his, but it doesn't matter. It doesn't matter which of those guys came up with this first or gals. It's a beautiful summary of the gospel. Here it is. A summary of grace. This is John Bunyan speaking to himself. Run, John, run, the law demands but gives me neither feet nor hands. Come, John, come, the gospel says, and gives me wings to fly instead. Now, let me say that again. And as I do, would you just indulge me and put your name in there? Unless your name is John, and then don't change anything. Otherwise, put your name in there. This is the heartbeat of Colossians. Run, John, run. The law demands. But it gives me neither feet nor hands. Come, John, come, the gospel says. And gives me wings to fly instead. This is what is supreme about Christ. The anointed one, the Messiah. Jesus, the Savior, who is the Christ. This is what is supreme about Christ. That he has fulfilled the law on our behalf lived a perfect life. He is now a perfect sacrifice for our sins and the justice of God. We are given his righteousness, which he procured, and his name adopted into his family, risen with him, hidden with him. All the demands of the law have been met. And now wings to fly instead. And so what Paul has presented to the Colossians, to us, is it's not some new religion. 
It's not some new little house religion Gnostic thing, you know, just one among many in the empire. Hopefully they can gain some traction and get some tithes. And Jesus isn't just a moral teacher. He certainly had some moral things to say, but he can't just be a moral teacher. Lewis was right. He's either the Lord or he's a liar or he's a lunatic because this is the Son of God who went to the cross and every one of his disciples who could not have all hallucinated the same thing claimed that he rose from the dead. What's supreme about Christ is his finished work which now comes to us as the grace of God. Well, what is grace? We use this word all the time in church, right? It's a big church word. And I think it's good from time to time to stop and sort of flesh it out. One of the best illustrations I've heard of grace is from the book, which then became a play, Les Miserables. And you think I've read that book? Absolutely not. Do you think my wife forced me to watch a movie? Absolutely. In Les Miserables, there's a character named Jean Valjean. He's basically the main character. He's in jail. He is a convict and he's released. But he's still walking in his own ways. What does Jean Valjean do? He comes upon the bishop. And the bishop is a good and a godly and a righteous man, a kind man. And so he takes Jean Valjean into his sanctuary. He lets him spend the night. He gives him the tour of the church. He provides food and kindness, warmth, a bed and a pillow upon which to lay his head. But you may know the story. Jean Valjean wakes up in the middle of the night, still in his wily ways, still trying to make a man of himself, still living in his own righteousness. He goes downstairs to steal the church's silver. The one thing the church had of real value, the one thing that allowed the church, if needed, to sell, to stay afloat, as collateral as leverage, and he sneaks down in the middle of the night and steals it all and runs away. But Jean Valjean is obviously not a very good convict. And so he is found out by the police, the French gendarme, who undoubtedly say something very erudite in French and slap him with a white glove. They bring him back to the bishop and throw him at his feet. And you can imagine the scene. You can imagine the silver forks and knives and spoons, you know, erupting forth from his cloak. There's no question of his guilt. Nor should there be of ours when we stand before the holiness of God and the righteousness of his law. Jean Valjean is found out. He is found out. There is nowhere to go. He is guilty. And in those days, to steal that much silver and to steal it no less from the bishop of a church, this was no slap on the wrist. It was a death sentence. And yet, what happens in the story? Well, what the law should have done, what the law should have done is carried Jean Valjean away to the guillotine. You made a choice, there's a consequence, and there it is. Do this and you will live, do it not and you will die. You've stolen the silver, let's go, off to the guillotine. Mercy, mercy would have been the bishop saying, gosh, man, that's awful. I can't believe you did that. What kind of jerk would come in here and get food and get abandoned and then steal from the church? But because I'm a righteous man and because I am kind, I'm going to let you go. But get out of here. I never want to see you again. I despise you. Go away. Or perhaps you could stay here and work it off. That'd be mercy. 
Not the death sentence, but why don't you stay at the church and, you know, you could scrub the floors with a toothbrush for the next 20 years. But no. Grace. He looks to the gendarme and he looks down at Jean Valjean and he says, My son, my son, I'm so glad you're back. Now the gendarme is completely confused. Jean Valjean has no idea what's going on. And the bishop turns and says, you left too soon. You left and you forgot the candlesticks. And he hands over to the convict, not the fork, not the knife, not the spoon, but the thing of silver of most value that they had in the entire church, the silver candlesticks. He says, my son, I'm so glad you're back. You forgot the the greatest gift of all. Now take this silver with you and be on your way. He says to Jean Valjean, I give you over to God. Now this is an illustration of God's grace. By the law, he was condemned. By mercy, perhaps sent away without punishment or kept as a slave to pay it off. But grace not only says, I forgive you and I bear it, but I bless you and I give it. Grace not only says, I take the punishment for your sin and your wrong, but in the same breath, I give you my greatest blessing. And the bishop does bear the consequence of Jean Valjean's sin. Don't miss this. It is the pain and suffering of the bishop for the glory and the resurrection and the hope of Jean Valjean. It is undeserved and unmerited, not pardon, favor. And so we need to grasp the grace of God. Maybe remember that story. I mean, you can watch it online. It's powerful. It's such a powerful story because it reminds us that that's us before Jesus. That we were thrown down at his feet. We were guilty. No hiding. It's obvious. We're in need. We're dependent. We are sinners. We need grace. And he gives it freely. And so I want us to think on this point, grasping the grace of God. For it's one thing for us to grasp it in our hearts. It's another for us to exercise that which we have grasped. Who is the person in your life, I dare you, who least deserves your candlesticks? Now we're getting to some Holy Spirit stuff, my friends. Who is the person? I've got like three people on my mind right now. And I'm one of them, by the way. Some of y'all are just bad at giving yourselves the grace that Jesus has already given you. Who least deserves your candlesticks? Oh, I don't mean that, you know, well, they should just get their consequence so they learn. I don't mean you're going to, you know, stand above in the seat of mercy and, okay, well, I won't, you know, I won't beat you up, but I certainly don't want to be your friend. No, I'm talking about candlesticks. Who least deserves your candlesticks? And may I just say, that is the person that most needs them. Because if the gospel gives us wings to fly instead, those wings that lift us up to Christ also send us toward the Jean Valjeans in our life. This is the amazing grace we sang about. 
Grasp the grace of God. It's why Paul, like a dog on a bone, refuses to leave it. Because it's the only thing that changes our lives. More rules, more religion, more try harder, do better, you know, count your spiritual calories, get your steps. These are all good things, but none of them have the power to change a life. Only grace. Now, if this is true, we can then grasp the grace of partnership. Because what grace does is grace makes a village of people interconnected in deep relationships who are serving one another and serving in the kingdom of God. So grasp the grace of partnership. It doesn't just take a village, grace makes a village. And even Paul, the super apostle, confesses his dependence. Oh, I need these people. I need you. Remember my chains, please pray for me. I saw this story recently about a man getting onto a subway in the Australian city of Perth. I've never been there. And you know Aussies are a little bit rowdy. But this is one of those things that when you're reading this and watching this, your heart starts to pound. This guy's just going to work. He's getting onto the subway. The train stops. Everyone's on. Everyone's off. It's busy. And all of a sudden, his leg slips down in between the subway, the train, and the platform. Oh, that's cool. Somebody will help him out, right? Sure. Yeah, they come. They're trying to get him out. They can't get him out. Have you ever ridden the subway? You've heard the bell. You know it doesn't take long for the doors to shut and the train to go. So all of a sudden, you know, you see these, these police officers running out of the corner. They're doing their whistles, the whole thing. Stop the train, stop the train. Oh, okay, good. Stop the train. Now I know what's going to happen. They just needed a little bit, you know, calm down. Everybody take a deep breath and pull this guy out. Well, it's true that every Australian's a surfer, so you know these are strong people, okay? They got good shoulders. And you get one guy, can't get him out. Two guys, three, four, five guys around this guy, they can't get him out. He's trapped. The train is stopped. There's nowhere to go. He can't get his leg out. And taking off and ripping off the leg just doesn't seem to be an option. So what do they do? Someone has an idea. They call everyone off the train. And it's this amazing scene. You find this on YouTube. Where all of a sudden you have, you know, not 10, not 20, but like 200 Aussies doing this on a subway car. How many tons do these things weigh? And they're connected to tracks. And on the third push, boom, they lift this guy up. Friends, that's us. That's the church. That's the church. Imagine if these police officers had just come around, look at this guy, stop the train. All right, everybody off, everybody point, and on the count of three, one, two, three, shame. How dare you fall in the track, you fool. You know the way. You know how to get onto a train. How dare you fall between the train and the track? Oh, what a waste of time. We're all going to be late to work. And yet, have you ever like, been on a team and won a game? You know how that feels? Or accomplished something significant in your life or in your career? You know how that feels? The joy on the faces of these Aussies as they were able to move an entire train together and free this guy. It's amazing. You know, no shaming, no beating up, no, you shouldn't have fallen. 
hey, why don't we all get together and help? That's what grasping the grace of God in partnership means. That's what it means for us to be the church together. God made us together. I want you to remember that Adam in the garden had perfect fellowship with God. He had all the animals. He had a beautiful paradise. And yet he was lonely, and his loneliness wasn't a sin. The creation was only declared to be very good after God created a partner for Adam to connect with and be in relationship with and have partnership with a deep friend, Eve. And we are meant to reflect Jesus in that exact same way. As John said a couple weeks ago, this is all so subversive, right? It just undercuts all the power structures of class and race and socioeconomics because what do these people all have in common? Except for the good news that they are sinners saved by grace. We have men and women in this list. It's amazing. We have the free and slaves. We have Jews and Gentiles. You know, I was driving around with Caitlin yesterday. I'm like, wow, it's traffic out here. And as usual, no one knows how to drive in Santa Fe. And I'm looking around. I'm like, Texas plate, California plate, Texas plate, California, Texas, California. And I'm like, what in the world could bring Texas and California together? The Jews and the Gentiles, except for the glory that is Santa Fe, the one thing. And by the way, when your new neighbors move in, by the way, if your new neighbors and you're here, praise the Lord, we want you, we need you. When y'all's neighbors move in, I want you to love them, bring them some cookies. Let's, it's Easter's coming up. So let's invite some people to hear some good news about Jesus. Oh, it's so subversive. All are welcomed by grace. Those with a bad past, Onesimus, and those who we know are going to have a rough future. Demas, we're told in 2 Timothy that he deserts Paul. Doesn't mean that he's left the faith necessarily, but there's been a significant falling out. We've got prisoners and we've got doctors on this list. It's crazy. And yet this is the visible church, this diverse and beautiful group of people that not only are all welcomed by grace, but that by grace all are used by God. We are one body and many members. And the nature of this being used is or, or serving, pouring out your cup. Jesus fills it up with his grace. We pour it out now as a drink offering to those around us, is sacrificial love. And Paul highlights that with Nympha. She's in Laodicea. She's got a church in her house. I found this great little note about churches in the first century. They were small. Groups of Christians, usually between 25 and 50 people. At this time, Christianity was not even recognized as a legitimate religion. There's no evidence of church buildings until the third century. But extensive archaeological evidence from many different cities show that some homes were structurally modified to hold such churches. This is what it means to have a Jesus-sized custom home. How could we scandalize the idols of old Santa Fe by having a Jesus-sized custom home? How would Jesus set up this house? Oh, and that convicts me. I struggle with it as much as you guys do. A huge table, a huge family room, probably really small closets. Probably not the need to have 28 master bathrooms. And I'm not hating on anyone here. This is pointed right back at me. How would I modify and arrange my home and my life 
like Nympha did hers, so that the church could grow in my house, so that small groups could come and hear God's word and be in partnership together. Lastly, the grace of healing. And when I say we're going to need to go quick, I lie. You see, grace bears tangible fruit. Grace is the beginning and the end. Grace makes a village. Grace bears tangible fruit. This could be a whole other sermon, but you just need to know that we see the grace of God's healing justice. This gracious healing with Onesimus, a former slave of Philemon, he now is carrying with him the letter of Philemon back to Colossae. He has no idea what's going to happen. He's been saved. He's repented, but he flee. He fled. He stole this Onesimus. Now he has to go back and face the music. His life is completely in God's hands. And if you read the book of Philemon, you know that God did this incredible work of restoration and reconciliation among a master and a bondservant. Again, in the Roman Empire, it would have been death. But the gospel takes death and makes it life. We also see the healing of deep forgiveness. And this is back to the candlesticks. Who do we need to forgive? How can we forgive each other? How can we be honest with each other about what we're dealing with? Man, if you're really frustrated with somebody, there's two options. You can either cover it in love or you can connect with them in gospel relationship and be honest with them and humbly repent and tell them what you're thinking and feeling. That is scary, it's risky, it's hard. We can barely do it in our closest relationships like our marriages and our kids. But man, if we were to do more of that, this place would shine so brightly that you'd have people that don't know Jesus running into this church because that's different. That cannot be found in the world. And so we see the story of Mark who 12 years earlier in the book of Acts left Paul and there was a huge fallout with Paul and Barnabas over Barnabas' cousin, John Mark. I mean, this was serious. It's like a church split. But now they're back together. Now they're together again. Because the grace of God not only puts people in partnership, but it heals. It heals our brokenness. It heals the challenges of that being in relationship together. Paul ends by saying to Arik. Aricopus, I can't even spell the guy's name. See that you fulfill the ministry that you have received in the Lord. Friends, we have the same purpose that these folks did in Colossae. Imagine if we, Christ Church Santa Fe, lived in this grace. The grace of God, the grace of God in partnership, the grace of God in healing. Imagine if we believed that run, John, run. The law demands, but it gives us no way to do what it demands. Come, John, come, the gospel says. It gives us wings to fly instead. And the best news of all of this is that as we are grasping the grace of God, it is Jesus himself who is grasping us. Let's let Santa Fe see that, that caring letter. That would be a letter that all would want to read. Let's pray. Father, thank you so much for your goodness to us. In the letter of Colossians, man, we, I, I'll just say, Lord, I've been so blessed and humbled and encouraged by, I don't know, just studying your word. I was talking to John this morning, just reminded that how many hours a week do we spend on Netflix? For me, it would be more than I want to admit before these people.
in this prayer? How many hours a week do I spend doing so many things that I want to do, and yet it is, it is good to come and just be under your word and with Jesus in your word together for such a short time so that we can be reminded as we hear it that you have not only, you have not only shown us mercy, you've given us the candlesticks. Thank you, Lord Jesus. And thank you that for one another, we can be those who gather on the platform and together, by your grace, have the strength to move a subway. Lord, may you continue then to do your work of healing in this body. Help us to forgive one another. Help us to reconcile. Help your justice to flow down and to be seen clearly by our neighbors who we love. And Lord, would you make all those things very real to us as we partake at this table. Amen.